Welcome to the Donna Sebo Show. Donna is an international mental practitioner, psychic, award-winning author, counselor, speaker, teacher, and radio television talk show personality. She brings to the airwaves talented people from around the world who share their insights and experiences with you, the listening audience. Now, let's join Donna. Hello. If you're one of those people, usually it's women, not men. Men seem to have more common sense about this than we women do. We get a little bit obsessed about how we look, the amount of weight we may be carrying or not carrying. It's it's a phenomena that I think so many of us have grown up with, and it's still being portrayed in social environments in the United States throughout the world. It's really significant. Well, my guest this evening, Iris Ruth Pastor, I am so looking forward to having a conversation with her because she has put out a book called The Secret Life of a Weight-Obsessed Woman, Wisdom to Live the Life You Crave. And I had to chuckle. Because you'll find during our conversation that we will be referring to her lover, E.D. Now, that means eating disorder, not erectile dysfunction. When I read that, I said, okay, I've got to find out more about what this woman went through. And believe me, it is something to find out about. Iris Ruth Pastor, I am so delighted that you are my guest this evening. My goodness, you just put everything out front and with purpose, didn't you, when you sat down to write this book? <laughs> yes, I did. And uh, there were some people in my family that weren't very crazy about me going public with it. There is a tremendous amount of shame, Donna, with the eating disorder issue. Oh, yes. And what what I found that was so remarkable, because I had been bulimic for 45 years. That is amazing. That is amazing yes. to me. I, I just, yes. That is something that I go for over 40 <laughs> years. You were going into a bathroom and throwing up in the toilet? I mean, really? Yes, yes I was. Oh. Yes, I was. Oh. And And I think that the biggest surprise... And I've been in recovery for nine years. I think the biggest surprise was when I started doing public speaking about it and talking about it, people would come up to me afterwards and say, you're so brave. And I took that to mean you're so brave because you confronted your addiction, you went for help, and you overcame it. That's not what they were talking about. What they were saying is, you're so brave for going public with it because there's so much shame and embarrassment and humiliation around this issue. And that was eye-opening to me. But I had already written the book and gone public, so there was no way I could go back undercover. But there's a lot of shame. And people, people don't want to admit that they have an issue. And there's something like, 38 million people in this country that have an eating disorder, and that's not even counting the people across in the world. I serve on certain national boards for eating disorders, and when we have phone calls, we've got people calling in from Australia and Great Britain, Israel, all over the world. So this isn't just the United States problem, 
And one of the things that I like to talk about is that this isn't also a white girl's problem. This is not a 16-year-old problem. There are so many women age 50 and above that are suffering, that have eating disorders, that have an unnatural obsession with the scale. It's, it's rampant. And I thought that that needed to be brought to the forefront. Well, I'll tell you, and I have to laugh at myself every time I think about it, but many years ago when I started traveling and doing appearances, I can remember packing in my suitcase a scale. And I thought afterwards, that had to be the dumbest thing I ever did, but I can relate so strongly. I'm not bulimic. And But it is something that I can totally relate to the obsession with weight because I was put on a diet when I was five years old by my mother. I was born and raised in Southern California, and the Hollywoodism stuff, <laughs> you know, was really huge. And my mother bought into it hook, line, and sinker, and I am... I'm Italian, German, and God knows what else. I'm a Heinz 57, and I'm one of these little short people that's got a strong constitution and it's got a very strong build. And I wasn't fat at all, but according to the Hollywood image, that is what I was, whatever that was, and that was basically being a toothpick, especially when uh, people were coming out in the modeling industries that looked like a twiggy. They didn't have any shape. I mean, it just it wasn't allowed. There was a psychological patterning that just went all over the place. And when I started reading your book, I thought, this is what happens with people that buy into this stuff. And you started, actually, when you were in college but you also almost died because of this patterning in 2012 am i right well it wasn't quite that dramatic but what happened was i began to realize that it was taking a toll on my body and that's when i looked at myself in the mirror i had a couple of grandchildren at that point and i said i've accomplished so many good things in my life and i raised five healthy engaged functional sons I have a speaking career, a writing career. I, I really felt very good about what the things I had accomplished. And I said, if, and this is going to sound pretty graphic, but I said, if I die in a pool of my own vomit, Ugh. that's what my grandchildren are going to remember. That's not the legacy I want to leave. So that propelled me to start to confront my demons. But getting back to buying into this, this culture, it, it wasn't only that, Donna. What it was also is, and, you know, we all have, have our looks. So my, I look better. I wasn't a pretty fat girl, but I was a very pretty thin girl. And what, ha- what I found was that when I was heavier, in my mind, I became very ordinary and didn't get second looks and the guys didn't, you know, follow me around. But when I was on the thinner side, I got tremendous attention. Mm. So this, this fed into my feeling of self-worth. And if I, if I didn't weigh a certain, if the number on the scale wasn't under a certain number, I didn't feel good about myself, and I didn't get the accolades. 
from the males, which when you're 18 years old and you're growing up in the 50s and 60s, that's pretty important. Mm-hmm. So when I went to college, I was a transfer student. I didn't know anyone. I'd like to say I had broken up with my boyfriend, but the truth was he had broken up with me. I had no idea of what I wanted to major in, and I also was away from home for the first time. All these factors plagued me, but I knew if I could stay thin, I could cope. And when I found a way to do that and eat all this great comfort food, I thought I thought I was like the most creative person ever. And that's when the binging and purging started. And at that point in time, there wasn't even a name for it. It was I just thought it was pretty clever. Wow. No name at all. What no I'm name. so amazed at is that you were able to hide it so well for so oh. long. Oh. <laughs> that was not hard. I had it down to a system. And what I did, and th- th- look, this is my experience. This may not be someone else's experience. I just want to make sure people understand that. This is how I dealt with the bulimia. I ate normally all day, and I ate pretty healthy. But at night, at 9 o'clock at night, my kids were in bed. My husband would go upstairs and go to sleep. And it was like my time to indulge. So I took out ice cream. I ate like a pint, a half gallon, whatever, and then just went in the bathroom and threw it up. But I I didn't do it when I was really out to dinner. I didn't do it when I had to excuse myself around people. So no one really knew. No one really knew. And... Because of the way I did it, I didn't really suffer any bad physical effects. So I just kept on doing it. Wow. But, again, you had the effects physically that were getting to you, and you said six months before your 65th birthday, and you say, poised on the brink of Medicare, I decided I wanted to grow up and own up. And Yes. That was, what was the trigger for that? What was the situation? I mean, face because, it. Because I felt like, I felt like, I felt like I was doing some harm to my body. In other words, when I would binge and purge, my stomach would start to go into, like, spasms. Mm-hmm. And I was getting very hoarse with my throat. And I just said to myself, you just know your body. I just knew I couldn't continue like this. And I think the other thing was, and this is actually something that is not as uncommon as you think. I had been through a lot of therapy, and I had talked about anxiety and depression and anger management, you know, all these different things, And but I never talked about my bulimia. So what happened over the years is I had acquired the skills to manage my life and manage my emotions So I really didn't need the binging and purging, but I just continued to do it at that point more as a habit. And so at the age of 65, I was was able to break that habit because the reasons that I had been propelled to binge and purge no longer existed. Now, that being said, when you go into the research on eating disorders, you know, they talk about your brain and, and different things like that. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I considered myself pretty lucky because I think if I knew all about how addictive the behavior was and how it changes your brain, I think I would have been much more frightened of, of 
being able to recover, but I didn't know about that. So I kind of, I guess, got lucky. And I entered a treatment center for three months. I was in a an outpatient program because I was working full-time. My family didn't know about this, and I wasn't ready to go public. But the psychiatrist there said, if you have been doing this for 45 years, I don't think you're going to be able to, you know, overcome it with just an outpatient situation. But I, that was my choice. I wasn't going to go inpatient. So the the real healing and the real journey, though, began after my treatment when I had stopped purging because then I had all these things I had to figure out, like when am I eating because I'm hungry? When am I eating because I'm just emotionally needy? What's triggering me to want to eat more? Uh, how do I, you know, how do I find pleasure? Because my pleasure was eating. So how do I find other sources of pleasure? So all these, these things work themselves out post treatment as I was writing my book. And that's when I learned so many things. Well, you've covered so many aspects of your journey, and what surprised me is that you actually presented the manuscript to your husband, and there is a commentary on the part of your husband, and he was totally unaware of what you were doing, but he knew something was, as the old kahunas would say, something was eating at you, and he just... He just didn't have a clue. And you've been married for years. But also, the, the thing was, not only that, but I did not want to make him part of the process. And when you go into treatment, they like the family to be part of the process. But my feeling was, I did not want him to be the warden. I didn't want him to be looking over my shoulder, watching what I ate. I did, I, I, so I kept him at arm's length. The, really the entire time. And and honestly, I didn't regret it. I just didn't want to have that kind of relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And I, I respect that, and I understand it. How was the situation with your dad? And be, your dad was a big influence on you, and he ended up joining Weight Watchers, and that had an impression on you. Tell us about the association with your dad and how he influenced you with some of your decisions. Well, the the interesting thing is, is that, you you know, you tend to look at your mother and think, oh, your mother was the instigator. My mother, in my case, she never had a weight problem. She always knew when she was hungry. She finished, she wouldn't just automatically finish everything on her plate. So she didn't really, she didn't influence me to, you know, to become a sin. She just was fine with whatever weight I was because weight wasn't an issue with her. My father, on the other hand, if you put a plate of spaghetti in front of him, would eat it till it was gone because he never had that little click in his brain that said, oh, I'm full. So, so my, so I really, I think I took after my father and he did, he was one of the first men that went to Weight Watchers and he was kind of a chauvinist. So, Looking back on it, it was kind of interesting that he did that, but it did it did teach him portion control and you know when when he was hungry and and calories and different things like that. And I actually, when I finished my treatment, because they wouldn't really allow you to 
find out how much you weighed. They didn't like you to, to know how much you weighed. I ended up like about 15 pounds heavier than I was happy with. And I said to my husband, if I can't take this weight off, I'm going to go back to being bulimic. And so I followed in my father's footsteps years later and went to Weight Watchers. And it was such a good it was such a good lesson for me because when you're bulimic, you have no idea of portion control. So you have to learn that. And, and I, I just, I was able to figure out when I was hungry during the day naturally, and that's when I ate. And it was, it was a great experience for me. You have mentioned that you have been associated with a number of different organizations, and there is quite a bit of concern about young women, young girls, who will all of a sudden start dieting, and you talked about what it was like for you at 18, but when you have girls that are 10 to 12 years of age, and they say that they're fat and they're not, uh, and they go on all of these wild and wacky diets, it really is something that is of concern, because their bodies are growing, they are maturing. What has the research found about young girls especially? The guys don't worry about it. The girls always do. And society puts a label on you. And, you know, you hear constantly people are so obese in the United States and there's so many that are so overweight. What has the research, the latest research that you have been made aware of relative to the people that have eating disorders? Well, I, I I don't know if I can answer that accurately. I can tell you kind of what my impression is. And my my impression, and I, I've watched with my granddaughters, you know, you go through that age when you're 10 or 11 and you have a tummy and different things like that. And I think that it's so important for mothers not to focus on that and to kind of just kind of ignore it because you don't want to feed into it. I think that that's probably a healthier way than to than to let your anxiety about it, if you have anxiety, be shown. And I think the other thing that's really important is to start educating in the younger years in school about eating disorders so that you demystify it. And when 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 you and I were growing up, because there were no words for it, we, we didn't really understand what was happening when we had these urges. But I think now that it's so much in the news and it's the media dwells on eating disorders, I mean, these kids know about it. So I think you have to give them accurate information and explain to them why this isn't a good thing because research is found, the earlier you catch it, the better it is. And I think when you start to see a kid, especially it seems like anorexia is so pre- prevalent, you know, when you see a kid that's not eating or eating very little or, you know, throwing your food in the garbage or something, I think you have to act on that quickly because I think the, the swifter that she gets help, the more quickly she'll go back to a normal type of eating and it won't be going into this disordered pattern of of suppression and then binging and purging and things like that. 
I remember a friend of mine who had been training from the time she was just a little girl to be a prima ballerina, and she actually attained that, but she said to me it was really psychologically a trauma for her because when she was going through training, uh, they would weigh them every single day, and if a young woman gained a pound or two, she was really upbraided. She not only had to not have an ounce of fat on the body, but also uh, if she was in her menses or anything of this nature where you automatically gain weight, that didn't make any difference. And she said it really, really psychologically hit her very, very hard, and she reached a point as an adult where... Her body just wasn't cooperating with her. She couldn't lose weight at all. I'll never forget that. And this is something, even today, uh, there will be real intense comments by different people about a person's size. The irony is that obesity is one thing, but sometimes it's how we think in our heads about what our bodies look like and who we are. And just like you said, if you didn't see a certain number on the scale, you were not a happy camper. You just were not going to be satisfied with anything less than that. And there is that spot in the brain. What was the biggest challenge you had getting out of that spot in your brain so that you didn't have this obsession? Well, first of all, I just want to tell you, it's very real. I had a friend who was overweight. Her husband was very good-looking, and they would go to parties. They, this is when they were in their 40s. They would go to parties, and basically people would always pay attention to them and not her. And then she lost like 20 pounds, and she said, all of a sudden, people were interested in my opinion, but I was the same person as I was when I was 20 pounds heavier. So mm-hmm. society definitely rewards us. I think the way that, that you get – first of all, I think it's a maturation process. I think when you start to like yourself, and this is an incremental process, it's like mouse steps, it's not kangaroo leaps, but I think when you like yourself, when you start to treat yourself as kindly as you'll treat your friends, and I think when you start to recognize your strengths and your talents, the weight on the scale, the number on the scale does not have as much power over you. Now, if I got on the scale and gained a couple of pounds, yes, I would be annoyed but it wouldn't change the way I feel about myself, nor nor my routine, nor my confidence level. But I think that's because of all these different things that you naturally, maybe not naturally, but that as you mature, you you find you know you find that core, that inner core, and you trust yourself more, and you're not as vulnerable to outside influences and different people's opinions, but. That's a hard thing when you're 18, and certainly it's a hard thing when you're 10. So that's why I think girls especially are so vulnerable and that you need to get some help if there's any signs or like what you said. You know, if they've got a coach and they're on a team and this coach is over-focusing on their weight, that's not a good – that's not healthy. Mm -hmm. That's just not healthy. Mm Mm-hmm. I had so to, I think it's awareness. Yes, I had to chuckle at your son's response when you went public with them. And you had a friend, Joy. She has four children, and the two of you have known each other for a long time. And she looked at you and she said, your kids already knew you had a challenge. And you didn't believe her. 
And they didn't. And they didn't. But my friend also had daughters. And I think if I had daughters, I think I would have transferred so much of my anxiety over my weight. I think I would have transferred it onto them. But with sons, I watched my kids in the morning get up and go to school, especially during high school. And it would be like, did you, did you remember to brush your teeth? Oh, no, I forgot. You know, and they'd go with their hair uncombed and disheveled. And they, they didn't, their, their self-image wasn't tied up with the way they looked, really, in the way that girls were. And, and so it didn't really surprise me that they didn't know. And honestly, Donna, I probably never would have shared it with them had I not written my book. I, I don't think I would have ever shared it with them. But I had to because of the book. Mm-hmm. And one of your sons sort of laughed, and you were you didn't know quite what how to respond to that. But he said, "Okay, that's that doesn't surprise me. I mean, they they knew you, and it it didn't upset them in any way, shape, or form. No, it did it did upset them. But what what it was is they couldn't relate to it because they had never they had never seen me do it." And, and so to them, it was, even today, it's very abstract. But I have a friend in Australia who's anorexic, and she has a couple of kids. I think either three or four kids. And she said to me, oh, my kids knew because they had to take care of me. And it was like, oh, my God. My, my, I, 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 would, I just couldn't have handled that. So to me, to my kids, it was very abstract. And it still is. I mean, they know it like a lot. They know it intellectually, but I don't think they know it viscerally because mm-hmm. it was just something I wrote about that they did not experience. With the women, and I would imagine even the men that have become aware of what you've written, you mentioned that there already was a response about your being brave, but. Did you have anyone that said, thank you, I know that I can get help and I can I can correct this and not feel ashamed after they read your book? What kind of a response have you gotten from readers? A very positive response, actually. A very positive response because I think what surprised me was that you didn't have to be bulimic to relate to this book. You had to be, you had to be conscious of your weight. You had to have some investment with, with maintaining a certain weight. And most women can relate to that. I don't know any women who look forward to trying on a bathing suit. I think that it's tough to get old in our society. It's tough to accept our body is going to age. And hopefully, when those things happen, we have other things that counteract the decrements of of aging. And I think that the people that relate to my book are looking for other ways to feel good about themselves because you can only rely on your looks for so long. And it's exhausting after a certain age to continue to want to look 40. It's just, it's crazy. You have to accept yourself. So I think the book is about self-acceptance, liking yourself warts and all, and accept, and just really being comfortable with the whole package. And that's how people relate to it rather than, oh, this is some crazy woman who 
binged and purged for 45 years. There's a lot more to the book than just that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I felt that your husband's commentary was very significant, and he said that there's when he became aware of your patterning and what you had been doing, he said, you know what? He said, I, there, I was just who I was, basically, when he went through your years of marriage, and he was unaware of a lot of what you did. And then going through the retreat that you went through and to make the shifts and changes that you've done, that for him, he said, he, it, your weight really wasn't that big an issue with him. And I think with a lot of men, that's the case. They, if they love the women in their lives, they love them no matter what their weight is, unless it's something that's a real serious health issue, they just accept them as they are. We women have a real challenge in doing that. We have a real challenge because it's in our heads that we're supposed to look a certain way. We're supposed to be able to, you know, tango till the kitty cats come home and just be radiant all the time, and it really is coming into peace with who you are and what you want and what is so significant to you and having integrity with yourself. You cover all of that very, very well in your publication, The Secret Life of a Weight-Obsessed Woman, Wisdom to Live the Life You Crave. Now, your website is Iris Ruth Pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R dot com, irisruthpastor.com. What are they going to find on your website, Iris, when they go in to see what you are going to talk about? Well, one of the things I do is I have a weekly newsletter that I've had for about 30 years. So they'll have an opportunity to sign up for that, to read a lot of my past blogs that come out weekly. And plus, if they have any organizations that are looking for a speaker, I do speak also. And I think it's just, it's kind of a source of inspiration and motivation. My whole template is preserving your bloom, which is using your talents and resources to be the best you can be. Not perfect, Donna, but good enough. And that's what they're going to find. It's somebody just like them, struggling through, hoping to do the best they can, but realizing that they're not perfect. Well, I think your book is really fascinating as a read. I love your sense of humor. I think that coming into that awareness at your mature part of life and making a decision and going public with it, I think is just phenomenal. I really do. And I know that well, whoever thank you. whoever picks up the book is really going to benefit from it. And I think this is something that even would make a good read with a women's group, with a book club. I think it would just really be something very, very good for women to talk about and to share. Because so many times we isolate ourselves and we need to know we're not alone in this. And we need Absolutely. to be at, we need to be at peace with ourselves. And there are those venues of interaction with different groups, different people that really will be very supportive in the right way, which I think is significant. I want to thank you so much, Iris, for being my guest, and I wish you nothing but continued success. Thank you, Donna. It's been a real pleasure. Donna Sebo here, Iris Ruth Pastor.
www.thepowerofthenews.com. Check it out and check out our book. It really is quite a read. We are going to be taking a break, saying goodbye to Iris Ruth Pastor. We're taking a break. That phone line is open for you. If you would like to call in and chat with me, that phone number is 253-582-5597. And uh, that phone line, again, is open. And if you want to chat, just pick it up and dial the number. You'll be able to get right through to me. 253-582-5597. The Donna Sebo Show is heard weekdays, Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. Callers are welcome to call in during the second half of the program at 253-582-5597. Please note that the announcement is made at the bottom of the hour if I'm not in studio, able to take phone calls. Warriors for Peace is heard every Wednesday from 7 to 8 p.m. For current information regarding my email newsletter, programming, and appearances, go to DelphiInternational.com. For information on publications, including my award-winning children's books, audiobooks, and more, go to MrsSiebo'sClassics.com. This is Donna Sibo. If you or someone you know is an author and would like to be interviewed on The Donna Sibo Show or Warriors for Peace, please send a copy of the publication along with contact information, phone number, email, and website to The Donna Sibo Show, P.O. Box 99015, Lakewood, Washington, 98496. That's the Donna Sebo Show, P.O. Box 99015, Lakewood, Washington, 98496. Please allow six to eight weeks for review. Thank you. We are going to be talking with Dr. Gia Gottlieb on the next program, Ah, The Pleasure Book. We're going to be discussing that. We're also going to be discussing Life at Hamilton, we're going to be traveling to New York City, Broadway. Yes, we'll be talking with Mike Anthony. And then Restoring Intestinal Flora with Christopher Vassy. He is in Switzerland. That is coming up. Real Prison, Real Freedom. Rosser McDonald will be relating information about a man who is considered one of the worst criminals that was ever incarcerated in a prison in Texas, the story is a gripper. We're also going to be talking with Coach Michael. The future is brighter than you think. Ah, I like that attitude. And all of that and more. And don't forget, every Wednesday is a double header. We're going to be talking with Rabbi Wayne Dosick on Warriors for Peace. Radical loving is going to be the material discussed. And remember, our authors come from around the world. So it it brings home the fact that no matter where we are, no matter what country we might be in, what our culture is like as human beings, we have common denominators of experience and of situations. And when we can interact with each other, share information, we've got winning opportunities of improving our lives in a very significant way. I thought I'd share a little bit of trivia with you about witches. Mm-hmm. And this is material. I get all kinds of material that crosses my desk. This one is about period of history, and it's about the Brits. Yes. When 
Neville Chamberlain. Now, we're going to be stepping back into just a little bit before World War II. When England's British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain went to Munich, Germany in September of 1938 to see if he could get a peace agreement with Adolf Hitler, he thought that's what he had accomplished. He went back to England. He had the treaty signed. There would be peace for our time. Well, people were very, very upset with him because the general population in England said, no, this is not good. What you have done is not good. This person is not Mr. Nice Guy. And it was very, very true because a year later, Hitler invaded Poland. War, World War II had begun. Everything that was perceived by the majority of the population, it came out big time. And then in May and June of 1940, there was a series of circumstances that started happening. The British Expeditionary Force was nearly crushed by the Nazi army. Now, what saved them was a series of circumstances that Winston Churchill called a miracle of deliverance. And this story, they've done a film on it, and I happened to see the film. It is incredible. More than 300,000 men, just think of that number, 300,000 men were rescued from the coastal town of Dunkirk, France, and brought back across the English Channel by English civilians in every kind of boat. There was yachts, fishing boats, pleasure boats, even rowboats. And on July 31st, 1940, it is said that the English witches gathered in the New Forest in Hampshire and raised a monumental cone of power to stop Hitler's forces. It is also said that the well-known witch Gerald Gardner and his coven joined this grand assembly of coven, and five of Gardner's coveners died a few days later, and Gardner reported that he had been weakened by the energy and the stress that they had all put out. He had been weakened substantially. That event of the 300,000 men being rescued was absolutely phenomenal because they so easily could have been slaughtered. They were at a point where they didn't have any place to go. And it really, it's a very powerful story. And, you know, there's there's all kinds of things that go on in the world. And the term witch often was applied in past years when somebody's a little bit different, and especially with the women. And it gave an excuse for a lot of people to do some very, very bad things, in my view. And it was just, it was an excuse to abuse in all aspects. And it is something that we have to be aware of even today, that there are people, if they don't understand something, they are going to damn it. And they are going to create myths or various, you know, various statements of belief, which may not have any merit whatsoever. But they do it 
because they want something to disappear. Well, a little bit of trivia, and perhaps you're aware of the old story about Lady Godiva. You know, she's on a beautiful horse. Her hair is so long. She's nude, and she's riding through town. Well, there's been that image that has been promoted in various promotional campaigns for different things, and it's always been a story that's intrigued people. Well, we have to step back in time to find out about the origins of the story of Lady Godiva. And the story goes back to 1040. There was a man by the name of Leonfric. He was the Earl of Mercia and the Lord of Coventry. He had put taxation upon the people so heavily, and they were starving to death. They, they couldn't do anything. They Everything they had was being taken from them. Well, Monsieur Leonfrec, the Earl of Mercia, his wife was Lady Godiva, and she begged him to remove the taxes, and he challenged her. He said, you do this, I'll do it. He asked her to ride naked through the town, and then he would rescind the taxes. So this is what she did. Godiva ordered that all windows be covered at noon and that all townspeople stay inside. She mounted her beautiful white stallion, riding through the town. Her long, gorgeous hair was her only garment. And only one man dared to look at her. His name was remembered. He was called Peeping Tom. He was struck blind. It said that his eyes shriveled into darkness at the moment he beheld Godiva's naked figure. Well, that may have been part of the legend, but somebody figured out what he had done. Isn't it interesting how things come forth, but you didn't know about the true story about Lady Godiva, I bet. So there is a little bit of trivia for you to add to your conversation sometime when you're visiting some friends and you feel the conversation's really getting boring. Donna Sebo here, 253-582-5597. Well, we have some information that I think is quite interesting with medical research. I'm sure you've heard about people that have had hair analysis done to see about their mineral content in their body and this, that, and the other. Well, if ever you've had that test done, you need to, you need to be very, very thoughtful because you can't use hair that's dyed. It must not have any kind of, of chemical application to it whatsoever. And you then go in for an analysis and supposedly they're able to get a good read on the hair analysis. And that depends. Well, I was surprised to find out that a strand of hair can give warning about a heart attack. Now, this report came out of a new study that was published in Scientific Reports, and they said people who suffer a cardiac arrest are likely to have elevated levels of cortisol retained in their hair in the month prior to them having serious issues. And they say it's 
interesting to note that the levels of the stress hormone cortisol differed between people who have had a heart attack and those that are not affected. So they are anticipating that this is a marker that can be used. And there is a university in Frida, uh, Sweden where there is a investigator, Tomas Foreso. He's a professor at the Linköping University in Sweden, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's quite, um, quite interesting because they say hormones and many other chemicals may quickly dissipate from the bloodstream, but they can remain detectable for months in human hair. And your hair grows constantly, and it grows a few centimeters a month. And it can give a timeline to those doing the research as to when the hormone or chemical was present in the body, cortisol. And they went and did, in their study, research. They did research with 174 male and female patients that had been admitted to the cardiology clinics in southeastern Sweden. And among those who suffered a heart attack, the hair samples that they took said there were significantly statistically significantly higher levels of cortisol during the month preceding the event, even after making adjustments for other cardiovascular risk factors such as high blood pressure and diabetes. Now, they don't know exactly what causes the high cortisol levels, but they said the stress that someone is going through because the heart is having to work so hard can give the indicator. We are learning new things every single day. And I find it so fascinating that we're going to eventually achieve what I've talked about for almost 40 years, and that is individualized analysis of a person's body chemistry, learning about your genetics, paying attention to what it is that you may have in medications and all kinds of things, and they'll be able to make that assessment within a literally amount, a matter of minutes. So I think we're about 10, 15 years away from that. But it's eventually going to evolve. And then I think we're going to find that health attention and understanding things about our wellness is going to be front and center. And I think it's going to be something that can, you know, make people aware world you know, worldwide. I, I just think it's going to be really very, very significant. Donna Sibo here, 253-582-5597, if you would like to chat. You know, there's so much that happens with us in our lives, and so often we feel like we're sort of at loose ends. And one time I can recall being so discombobulated. And all it took for me to get myself back into what I'd call the rhythm of what I needed to be aware of was actually journaling. And this is something that I've mentioned through many different shows, and I emphasize it because sometimes when you're, you can be by yourself and you can just write out what you really feel and not concerned that somebody's going to violate your privacy. You need to be able to keep that journal private. But to be able to read it and to really become acquainted with yourself, with your fears, with your concerns, 
and to be able to look at it later on and say, I can deal with this. I can work with certain situations. It is really, really significant. And one of the points that was brought forth to me is so many times we don't live in the moment. We don't take care of what we need to take care of right at the moment. We are experiencing something. And Steve Levine, he said, if you were going to die soon and had only one phone call phone call you could make, who would you call and what would you say? And why are you waiting? That last sentence or question. And why are you waiting? He had said that at least the person that made the commentary that they had been reading. The guy's name is Gene, and he had been reading parenting books because he had a family, and they were describing different parenting strategies, and one of the strategies that was mentioned is that you need to talk with your child and use three magic words. And what are those three words? You probably already figured them out. I love you. And that was stressed over and over and over again. So this was something after he finished reading it, he goes upstairs, his son is in bed, and his son is playing the, you know, with some different things in the bedroom. And he said, I I knew my son was in there, but he wasn't responding to the knock on the door. Well, he finds he's got his earphones in. Mm -hmm. How many of you as parents note that your kids, they can't hear you because they're focusing on whatever's going on on the cell phone? Yes, they've got their earbuds in. And he said he was listening to a tape and just totally engrossed in what he was listening to. So he managed to get his son's attention, and he said, Hey, son, have you got a second? He said, Oh, yeah, sure, Dad. So... They spent about 15 minutes talking. Of course, Dad was sort of stuttering and stumbling because he didn't really know what he wanted to say. And he said, you know what? I I need to tell you something, son. I really love the way you play drums. And he said, oh, thanks, Dad. That was his son's response. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. So Dad was on his way walking downstairs. And he said, oh, I had wanted to give a certain message and didn't deliver it. And I thought, I better go back and say those three magic words, I love you. So he goes back, knocks on Tim's door, and Tim says, okay, Dad, yeah, what's it? He said, "Um, son, do you have another second? He said, oh, yeah. Uh, What do you need, Dad? Well, I wanted you to know that we love you. His son looks at him. He says, okay, Dad, thank you. You and Mom. He said, yeah, that's both of us. We just don't express it enough. He said, thanks, Dad. That means a lot. I know you do. And he said, you know what? I haven't given another message to my son. He said, I'm going to go back there and let Tim know exactly how I feel. He's going to hear it directly from me. I don't care if he's six feet tall. And he says, son, can I talk to you again? And his son said, yeah, Dad. He said, "Um, how did you know it was me? He said, I've known you ever since you've been a parent, Dad. And his son responded and said, you know, Dad, 
I suppose you're wanting to tell me something that you didn't tell me when you came up the last couple of times. And he said, well, how'd you know that? He said, I've known you, Dad, ever since I've been in diapers. I said, well, here it is, son. I want to express to you how special you are to our family. It's not what you do. It's not what you've done. Like all the things you're doing with the kids in town and everything that's going on, I don't know why I hold back on saying what's so important for me to tell you. So he just looked at him and he said, Hey, Dad, I know that. I, I, I really appreciate everything that you've said. Then Dad's starting to go downstairs and he says, Hey, Dad, have you got another second? His dad said, Uh-oh, to himself. Okay, I bugged him three times. I'm sure that he is going to have something to say to me. He said, Dad, I want to ask you one question. And Jean responded, "Uh, what's that question? He said, Dad, have you been to a workshop or something like that? He said, "Uh uh-oh, my son's got my number. He's thinking to himself. And he said, no, I was reading a book. And it said how important it is to tell your kids how you really feel about them. He said, okay, thanks, Dad, for taking the time. Talk to you later. Gene walked away from that experience. He said, I think what my son taught me more than anything else that particular night is that the only way you can understand the real meaning and purpose of love is to be willing to pay the price. You have to go out there and risk sharing it. I think that goes for friendships, for interactions with people who really mean a lot to you. And it's that integrity of feeling of awareness, of being able to do what you know is the right thing to do. There is so much that happens in our lives, and so frequently we forget to reach out to those people that mean the most to us and to let them know how much we appreciate them. I thought that dad's story was a significant one. And that's why I wanted to share it with you this evening. When I think of my guest, Iris, and the 45 years that she went through the journey she went through and then finally said, don't need this anymore. I'm changing my script. And by changing her script, she was able to share what her experiences were with feeling a sense of accomplishment and balance in a very, very special way. So I just thought I would share that with you because lots of times it makes a difference when we do speak our truth in the best way that we know how to those people that are right in front of us, that are a part and a significant, significant part of our lives in a very, very special way. Nanasibo here, 253-582-5597. I came across some information that I'm going to be, I think, doing some more research on. But this surprised me because it had to do with Japan. And I, when I came across this information, I was just holding it in my mind. And I went out to a gathering with some people. And there was a gentleman that was there. And we were talking about different cultures and different attitudes of different cultures that 
those of us attending the gathering had become aware of. And this was just an open conversation. And I said something that really surprised me was learning about what was going on in Japan. And this one individual has been traveling to and from Japan for over 40 years. And it was asked, what did you learn? And I said, it is what I would call, and every every country has this, it's what you call the dark underbelly. It's what the police have to deal with and with so many other scenarios that people have to deal with. And there are thousands of people in Japan, thousands of people that just disappear, absolutely disappear. And there are these engineering approaches of how to disappear There is a great deal of thought, and there's also a number of organizations that help people to disappear. And there was a young man that was spoken of, and I don't recall his name. He has been gone for 17 years. People are still looking for him. There are posters all over the place. One day he left for work. He went in, uh, and when he got to work... And he quit his job, and he ended up taking a ferry, the ferry that he had taken to go to a certain destination. They found his his suitcase. They found all kinds of things, and he was gone, just totally gone. Do you know they have upwards of 85,000 people missing, and that's more than that, actually, every single year. Now, what's interesting is that the police have a special force over there that looks for this, and there is every year 11,000 or more of that 85,000 plus that are never found. And mostly, it is men. There's some women, and it is absolutely amazing. It's called Johatsu, and there's an underground system uh, that is also given a name of Yoni Giga. No, no, Y O N I G E Y A, Yoni Giga. And they call them night moving shops. And they are operating 24 7, and they help people vanish overnight. And people sometimes are escaping debt. But many times there's domestic abuse or they just cannot handle pressure anymore. There's all kinds of of things that happen. And do you know they have like 100,000 companies over there that are doing this? And it is absolutely amazing. And I thought, wow, sometimes we look at different environments and we go, They've seemed to have everything. They're very controlled. All, all everything's just perfect. But I never knew anything like this existed in the Japanese culture, and it really is something that is um, well. It's not spoken of very much, but it does exist. Donna Sibo here. I know that we're just about out of time. I'm so delighted that you have been able to join me, and I appreciate 
your interest in the programming, share it with your friends, won't you? And we've got a wonderful lineup coming up next week, so I look forward to having you join me again. And remember, there's always the archives. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. God bless, be well, and we'll be talking again soon. Take care. I am looking forward to some more adventures with the guests that I feature on my show. been listening to the Donna Sebo Show. We're delighted that you were able to join us and invite you to tell your friends and family about the program. Have a wonderful day.